welcome to the Bible Feed podcast, a place for conversations about the Bible and faith in the modern world, where ordinary people come together to help each other understand the Bible better. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bible Feed podcast. I'm Dan Wetherall, and today we've got a topic which is really important. It's something that is very much about Jesus, it's specific to him, and about his death, and about why he died. Why did Jesus have to die? And I've got John Launchbury with me today to talk about that question. Welcome, John. Thanks very much. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, thanks a lot for for joining me. This is a really important topic, isn't it? It, It's relevant to this time of year. If, If you're listening to this as it drops, it's just before Easter 2023, But of course, it's not just relevant to that time of year. It's all throughout the year that it's important, isn't it, to think about the death of Jesus. But it can be a bit of a difficult question, a bit of a perplexing question. Why did Jesus have to die? And especially so, I'm just going to read, we'll start off with this passage here, passage from Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. This is what Peter says. He he says, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But he's talking to people who, and he says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So to some extent, God allowed and even even enabled this terrible event to happen. So th- that does raise you know, some questions that we've got to sort of think through and, and work out what it means. First thing I want to just talk through is what it's sometimes called. We're talking about the theology of, of the atonement. It's sometimes called that, isn't it? What does that word mean? Yeah. So atonement is a word that was actually invented in about the 1600s. I, I think it's William Tyndale, but you might want to check on that. Yeah. When he was translating the Bible into English, and he realized that there wasn't a word to describe what was going on here. And so he came up with this word atonement. And the idea is that of uniting. The, the word breaks up into at one to become at one. And that's how he constructed it. And it's about being at peace with God, about being at one with God as opposed to at a distance from God. And in the original biblical languages of of Hebrew and Greek, the fundamental idea is of God's graciousness towards us, his mercy towards us. Okay, so so the actual word then doesn't convey anything necessarily about death or sacrifice or death by crucifixion. It's often linked to that, isn't it? And of course, for very good reason, the Bible does talk about the death of Jesus in the same in the sense of reconciling us to back t- to God or bringing us back to be at peace with him so i guess there's there's some connection but that's a really important observation isn't it i think that the very word itself doesn't construe a particular understanding of that is, would that be fair yeah i think that's a really good observation that it is just talking about being reconciled with God, being at one with God. And it's not about a mechanism, what needed to happen or anything like that as to how we became at one with God. Okay. So that said, there are quite a few ideas or theories, we could even call them, aren't they, about some kind of mechanism for salvation or mechanism for forgiveness, how how the atonement works. So there's a few of those. There's probably two or three main ones. What what are the main atonement theories? Sure. So right from the start, the early disciples struggled with the idea that Jesus would die. There were times where he would tell them that he was going to be crucified. And the Bible says they just didn't get what he was saying. 
And it was only after the resurrection that they started to understand what he was going on about. And, and they came to realize that this was the greatest expression of God's love for them, of Jesus' love for them. And it affected them all profoundly as the gospel spread in those early years. It was an act of love that Jesus had gone through this. Now, later generations of church leaders, as they were developing their analytic theology, decided that they needed more elaborate explanations of of what was going on. And so one of the earliest elaborations goes back to somebody in the third century, that is the 200s, a couple of hundred years, that is, after Jesus died and and was raised. And it was the so-called ransom theory. And Origen, in his ransom theory, had the view that the death of Jesus was to buy us back from the devil. The way he understood it is because of our sin, the devil, in some sense, owned us and God couldn't have us. And so Jesus paid the ransom. And the ransom, Origen said, was to to the devil. The devil was the one that owned us. And and indeed, Jesus talked about the notion of a ransom and the New Testament writers Mm. talked about the notion of a ransom. But what Origen did was put it in the context of, of the devil. A few hundred years later, in the 12th century, I guess that's nearly a thousand years later, Anselm said, no, 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 it's, it wasn't a ransom. It was actually about God's honor needed to be assuaged. He, he came from the time where medieval Western civilization was very much into an honor culture. And the problem, he said, was that God's honor had been broken by Adam's sin, by our sin. And so God needed the satisfaction of somebody dying so that he could accept us. And that idea essentially continues into the modern day, but in a slightly different form. Under the reformers, people like Luther and Calvin, they said it wasn't actually satisfaction. It wasn't an honor thing. It was much more of a legal thing that there was a law that said sin leads to death. And so if there's been sin, there has to be death. And what Jesus did, they said, was punished, was was being punished in the place of each of us. He died instead of us, the so-called substitution theory. Yeah, okay. So there's three distinct ideas there, aren't there? This idea of a ransom, and then the idea of God's uh, honor being satisfied, and then the idea of Jesus dying in our place as a substitute. So that's the next level that comes out. I suppose in some of those, possibly the last two, you get the idea of, of God's wrath and, you know, sort of meted out on us. And, and the problem there is that, that God is, is angry with sin and therefore something had to happen. I'm thinking of that well-known hymn in, in Christ alone that where it talks about, is it something about the blood of Christ? The wrath of God was satisfied. And it's, it's a pretty controversial line that some churches change and then some churches make sure you don't change. So there's a few different ways to understand it. Well, let me ask you this. Do they have difficulties? It seem, seems like they're all quite distinct. Do they have issues, problems, difficulties with those views? They do. Each of them has their own difficulties. And, and to some extent, the church at large has recognized that even though substitution is still the predominant understanding, particularly within the global evangelical movement. If we take the ransom theory, so the devil owns us, as they thought, and, and, and now Jesus buys us back from the devil. But what happens? Jesus dies as a ransom, and then God says, ha-ha, but I'm going to raise him from the dead. And in some sense, swindles the devil out of what what he's due. And so God then is presumably not in a very good state there. When you think about substitution, the challenge there is that 
if Jesus is dying in our place, that means God is punishing somebody who wasn't the person who actually did the injustice. And it's never justice to punish the wrong person. In fact, there's lots of times in the Bible where God says, I hate it when the wrong person is being punished. And so I think that's a, it's a major ch challenge with um, substitution. But if we stand back from each of these theories, I think the biggest problem is that all these theories are saying that there's something wrong, as it were, in heaven that needs to get fixed. Either the devil owns us or God is offended or God would want to forgive us, but he can't because the law says that he has to punish us. And so they're all proposing some kind of transaction in heaven that has to take place to, to fix the situation. But ultimately, I mean, when you read the Bible, you come to the conclusion that the problem is never with God. The problem is with us. And so that's an issue if we use one of these transactional mm. theories that says God is trying to fix something in heaven. It's really about God is actually trying to address something that, that is, is wrong with us. And there's a related idea about this. This might be shocking to some of the listeners, but all of these transactional theories focus on the death of Christ as if mm -hmm. that's the thing, the one thing that made the huge change. But Paul says that's not enough. In Corinthians 15, verse 17, Paul is, is talking about the resurrection of Christ because they're not sure. Some of them are not sure whether Christ was actually raised. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Think about that. If mm. Christ just died and stayed dead, you would still be in your sins. And so that whole section is actually arguing that Jesus' resurrection is equally critical to our salvation. And there's a whole bunch of other passages that, that say that. It wasn't just the death. It was the resurrection also that was a critical part of, of, of the atonement of the salvation. Yeah, it's really interesting that actually, that you need to work that into the model or the, the theory. Whatever theory we come up with, whatever our understanding of the scriptures are, if we're not incorporating the resurrection into it, then we're only seeing some of the story, aren't we? Half of the story or one part of it. So let's just think about where we started. We're, we're, we're thinking about the atonement. We're, we're particularly addressing that question, why did Jesus have to die? But we'll get there in, in a moment, I think. But it all falls under this idea of being at one with God. We need to be reconciled to God. That's, that's the objective. Now, if there's these different theories which focus very much on the death of Jesus and on some kind of mechanistic view of it then and that they're missing a piece of the jigsaw i suppose and they're not necessarily how how forgiveness works so i'm just going to ask you this how do you think forgiveness works you know what is there in the scriptures that teaches us how god forgives so to my answer i bet is going to be very unsatisfying to people at first how <laughs> okay. does god forgive us he just forgives us no payment, no honor recompense, nothing like that. Like, just think about you. How do you forgive other people? Mm. Do you need 
payment before you forgive somebody who's sorry. God's more generous than we are. Ultimately, God says, I don't care about your sins. I care about your heart. And that's what he wants. He, he wants a sincere desire in us to be like Christ, a desire not to cause damage and destruction to ourselves and to others. Yeah, that's good. I, I was just thinking in prepping for this, thinking of the questions I was going to ask you, thinking about this topic. One passage that I kept coming back to was in Ephesians chapter 2. It talks about you being dead in the trespasses and sins. You once were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. By grace you've been saved. He raised us up and so on. And it, it's really interesting in the context of what you've just said about these transactional models and how they sort of almost put the problem in, in heaven, put the problem in God. And actually it, it doesn't read like that in Ephesians 2, does it? It, it certainly does read like God is just reaching out with grace to save and to forgive. So yeah, that does seem to make sense. However, there are one or two other passages. There are probably a few passages that listeners might be thinking of. Hold on a minute. What about this? What about that? And we probably can't go through lots of them. But there's just a couple that I I thought of that we could just think through. They seem to be talking about the death of Jesus more as some kind of uh, process or, or transactional model. There's that one in, in Romans chapter 3. So I'm just going to bring Romans 3 up and verse 23. So I'm going to read from the ESV and then ask you about this. It says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And so there's that word there, propitiation, um, by his blood. It's not a normal word, is it? We don't tend to use it in, in day-to-day language, but it, it does seem to convey something of some kind of sacrifice or satisfaction. But there's by his blood as well. It, it just sounds like there's something important about the fact that Jesus died. What's that verse saying? Can you sort of shed light on, on that? Let's let's focus in, in particular just on that word propitiation. Because as you say, it's, it's not a usual kind of, of word. No. It's a very technical word. When you look it up in the dictionary, propitiation means appeasement. That is, God needed to be appeased in some way. He was unwilling to accept us. He was unwilling to forgive us. And God is propitiated. He's paid to overlook our sins, is the idea of that English word. But it turns out it's a terrible translation of the Greek words that are associated with it. And the original idea connects to the seat in the tabernacle in the Old Testament. On top of the box, the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle, was something called, in some translations, the atonement cover, but it's typically translated the mercy seat. This is the place of mercy. When you come into that most holy place, this is the place of mercy. It's the place where God meets us for forgiveness. And for me, one of the places in the New Testament that gives the greatest insight into the Greek word that here the ESV translated propitiation, the same word occurs in the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector that Jesus says, and the Pharisee's proud and praying about himself and all of these kinds of things. But the tax collector is the one who just says, he wouldn't even lift up his eyes to God. He just says, have mercy on me, a sinner. And that word mercy is the translation of the same word that in Romans is translated propitiation. 
And, and so he just calls to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He accepts that he's a sinner. And, and he says, I, I, essentially, I, I can't fix it. I need your mercy, God. And Jesus says, and he went home justified. That was enough for God to be able to and willing to, to forgive him. And, and so I think that what we get with words like propitiation is the translators have a, a long history of atonement theories like substitution and so on. And what they're trying to do is reflect those in the language of, of Paul in Romans. Mm. That's really interesting, the Pharisee tax collect parable. That's Luke 18. I, I just brought it up. And it, it literally does say, yeah, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. And, and that's exactly the context of Romans 3, isn't it? About people and how they are justified or made righteous. And, you know, often this idea of appeasement or propitiation is brought up. And yet we've got a real, well, not a real life example, but a, a real life story, a parable in the life of Jesus. That he, he explains this, how it is, that his, the attitude of that tax collector compared to the, the proud attitude of the, the Pharisee. Okay, so that's helpful. So propitiation is more referring to this place, this mercy seat, um, the, the place where God met with his people in the Old Testament. And I suppose that the point is now that Jesus is this place. Jesus is where we receive mercy or where we can come to God and be reconciled. Okay, there's another one. I, I, I mentioned that Romans 3 talks about by his blood. And that made me think of Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, where it says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And that's very much or seems to be saying that God cannot forgive unless there is blood spilt, unless there is a sacrifice. What, what do you make of that verse? Yeah, as ever, context is really important when we look at any of these. And, and the, the phrase, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, is just the last half of the verse. The whole verse says something like, and I don't have my Bible just in front of me, mm -hmm. but it says something like, in the law, everything had to be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so the writer to the Hebrews is making it really clear that he's giving an analysis of what goes on in the law of Moses. In the law of Moses, all the rituals for forgiveness of sins involved the shedding of blood. It involves the giving up of one's life, as it were, ritualistically. Mm. But God never actually needed the animal to die. God never needed that. It was all about the person needed to see how serious it was. And David, King David, understood this in his incredible psalm, Psalm 51, which is talking about how he is coming to God for forgiveness and mercy after the dreadful sin, uh, series of sins, really, that started with his adultery with Bathsheba and ended up with the murder of her husband. Ultimately, he comes to this point in Psalm 51, verse 16. He says, you don't delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. And I think that's really powerful. He's saying, like, if you wanted dead animals, if you wanted blood, I, I would bring all of that. But I realize that that's not actually the point. What you want is my heart. You want a broken spirit. You want a broken and contrite heart. And so in the law of Moses, this shedding of blood symbolizes dying. It's when we allow our proud ego to die and actually come to God that God forgives us. Mm. Yeah, okay. So it's a, a teaching 
mechanism, as it were, in in the Old Testament. You know, a, a way of, of, of explaining to the people that their attitude ought to be one of of giving themselves. And yeah, context is so important, isn't it? So that Hebrews nine verse is quoting Leviticus, and it, it is literally yeah taking the law and saying look this is what the law said but but there's a whole wider context of in hebrews 9 and the, indeed the whole chapter that then explains what jesus has done which we'll think about in, in a minute I've just got one more I've just thought of as well. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on First of Peter, First Peter chapter two. It talks about Jesus bearing our sins in his body. I'll just quickly read this, verse 24 of chapter two. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And so there's there's often this idea, isn't there, of of Jesus taking on our sins and and only when he dies on the cross our sins are sort of taken away and and borne away I don't know whether that fits into the satisfaction theory or substitution I'm not entirely sure but what what do you think's happening what do you think that verse is is about really yeah I think it's really interesting because when we read that we we read some sort of metaphysical aspect about him symbolically or, or something like that carrying our sins but he actually told a parable that i think is really relevant here of the workers in the vineyard and the owner of the vineyard wanted the fruit and so he sent various people various servants to say hey can you give me some of the fruit from my vineyard and and they beat them up and sent them away empty-handed and he said you know what i'll send my son they'll listen to my son and so he sent his son to them and Jesus in his parable says, but what they did is they said, this is the heir. What we could do is we could kill him and then we'd have the vineyard for ourselves. And so they went and killed him. And in that situation, he bore, the son bore their sinfulness, like mm. the brunt of their anger, the brunt of their jealousy. And okay. I think that's what Peter was saying, that Jesus bore the full force of our sins as we as a people took him and murdered him. And he did it so that we might be freed. And I, and I, I don't think it's metaphysical. I think it's like he bore their anger. He bore mm. our anger, as it were, as we as we meted our displeasure upon him. That's really interesting. I'm fascinated by how you're sort of including yourself in that as well. And actually, that's what Peter's doing, isn't he? When he says he himself bore our sins in his body. And without being there on the night, somehow it's a sort of reflection of, of us, which we might be getting to the point now to actually sort of start thinking about what actually was the point of Jesus dying on the cross. Why did he have have to die? If indeed that's the right question, why did he die? So let's think that through. We've thought about some of these transactional theories. They seem to be talking about some kind of transaction in heaven that that's very sort of metaphysical and we've seen that there's problems with that both in terms of justice that you know that they're not actually just and and also scripturally that they don't fit with scripture so so we've seen god wants to forgive us he's willing to forgive and yet jesus died he died on the cross and it does talk about him in language of sacrifice and things like that so let's start unpicking that why was it that jesus had to die why go through that terrible death 
Yeah, so all the other ways that we've looked so far at the death of, of Jesus, as I say, are transactional theories. But there's one theory that is also ancient and, and finds its roots in the Bible, which isn't a transactional theory. It's a transformational theory. And it's called the moral influence theory. And the idea here, and I think it's well taught in, in scripture, is that the death of Christ was there as a catalyst to reform human beings. So it's, as I said, it's an ancient theory. It was clearly laid out from Augustine onwards, Augustine in about the 400s, but very present in the New Testament. When Anselm came up with his satisfaction theory, there were other people who were saying, no, it's not transactional. It's about the effect that the death of Jesus had on us. The death of Jesus was there as a witness to human beings, as a clarion call to wake us up, as an example that, that we should follow. And as human beings, we, we don't tend to like that because the terrible truth is that God didn't need Jesus to die. We needed him to die. We needed the powerful witness of that martyrdom to shock us out of complacency. And, and Jesus at various times makes it clear that his death is about being a witness to the world. Right at, just at the end of the Last Supper, just as they leave that upper room in John 14, Jesus says to them, I'll not say much more to you for the prince of this world is coming. He's no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the father and do exactly what my father has commanded me. It was a point of witness, like this is what true obedience looks like. And this is what true obedience looks like in the face of sinful humanity. And if you think about it, the death of Jesus was judicial murder. It was the church and the state and the crowd all working together to destroy this incredibly beautiful human being. And people like us, I'm sorry to say, like me, like you, destroyed him. And it demonstrates how profoundly destructive our natural inclinations are. And what Jesus was trying to do in getting us to learn what it is to love the Father and to do what the Father wants is he wants us to say, like, this is, this is how you should live your life. You should be committed to the Father. For example, he says in, in Matthew 10, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That is, he wants us to be willing to sacrifice ourselves in whatever way that manifests in our lives. Paul talks about letting his proud ego die. There's a lovely translation of, of some of his words there. Or Peter says it this way in, in 1 Peter 2. He says, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And so the moral influence theory says it wasn't about changing something in heaven, fixing God. It was about changing us, that we would be willing to give up our life mm. in the in the little things day by day as we interact with other people. And, and so that's how I, I now see this. When, when Jesus gave his life, it wasn't just the dying on the cross. That's not what to give your life means. Jesus gave his life. He gave all of his life to saving us. All of those 33 years, all the teaching, the demonstration of the compassion of God, the inspiring way that he lived his life in truth and total authenticity. All of this was him giving his life to saving us as a witness to us so that we may actually learn to turn to the Father and say, that's what I want to be like. And the Father says, then I forgive you. Yeah, I think that's pretty profound. I think that that's 
fits the scriptures and really when you start to see and read all these passages with that in mind it really seems to fit i just noticed that you quoted from 1 peter 2 which is exactly the the last one i looked at which the couple of verses later he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so so yeah in the very context of that this is talking about jesus being this example that we should walk in his steps and the example is verse 23 when he was reviled he did not revile in return when he suffered, he did not threaten. And so on one hand, we've got the crowds and the people and the rulers, people just like us, you know, reviling him and, and sinning against him. And he, on the other hand, you've got him bearing those sins in his body, not threatening, not retaliating, not not coming back with violence. So it's a real stark representation of what human beings always or usually are and what we are like and what Jesus shows human beings should be like. And and another thing that struck me, just while you're talking through, it reminded me of Acts chapter 2, that, that speech. In fact, that's where I started, where he says, this Jesus you have crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. I don't know what you think about this, but that was a crowd of loads of different people from all over. And how could they necessarily all be responsible for the death of Jesus? And yet it's really pointing at them. But the result is, verse 37, when they heard this, after Peter's long explanation about it, including actually the resurrection, which (laughs) I'm just, just piecing this all together as I speak. He says, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized. So there's that change in them that that is affected. So I don't know if you've thought through that in Acts chapter 2 before. It's one of those powerful moments. I think particularly it's really interesting that you have all the Jewish people coming together. So you've got the organized religion. And he's talking to the people of the organized religion and, and saying, God sent his witness, his own son to you. And this was the effect. And what you did was you combined with the, with the state powers, the, the Roman powers. And, and together, you've now got church and state all together coming to, in order to destroy this thing, this person, this lovely man that, that God has sent. And God says, no, that's not what should happen. And God raises him from the, the dead again as a declaration to us that those who are willing to give their lives over to Christ, to give their lives over to God, don't lose their lives, that, that their life is actually safe mm. and, and it will be saved. That's really lovely. One, one more thing that all this has made me think of, and, and just to prove that I do like some of Stuart Townend's hymns, I think I quoted In Christ Alone earlier, but there's that how, how deep the Father's love, how deep the Father's love for us, and there's that really haunting line, which is so powerful, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. That's I think that pretty much sums up w- what we've just brought out there, which you know, meditate on that and think about it and think about how we ought to enact a change in our lives and and how Jesus helps us to do that. So it's really, really helpful. Thanks a lot, John, for for taking us through this. Now, just before we sign off, one of the reasons I've got you on to talk about this is because you've written about it, haven't you? Do you want to just talk about or briefly just mention your book, where we can get, get a copy? Sure. The book is called Change Us, Not God. Meditations on the Death of Christ. And so the point of the book is there in the title that what I'm trying to do is have us look again and really understand the power of understanding the death of Christ as a witness to us, as a, as an act that was intended to transform us. And through the book, I dive into a lot of things like propitiation, what it means for the covering, Jesus to be a covering. Luther talked about that quite a lot. And so I, I described that in the book mm-hmm. as to how we can understand that 
Christ covers us and, and so on. So the book is available on Amazon and, and on Kindle. And, and there's a, an audio book as well, I think, on, on Audible. Great. Thank you very much. I do love a, a book title that tells you exactly what it's about right from the start. So there's no guessing. There's no mystery. So, yeah, thanks for that. Thank you very much for joining us again. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Please do get in touch if you have any questions or any topics that you'd, you'd want us to, to think through. As always, you can go to biblefeed.org. And until next time, we'll see you again. You've been listening to the Bible Feed podcast. Thanks for joining us. We're always keen to hear what you think, hear your questions or subjects you'd like to discuss. So get in touch with us on our Facebook page or send a message from our webpage at biblefeed.org and be part of the journey. Mm-hmm.